Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out this new episode. I just wanted to add a short bit of info before we get started. For those who may not be familiar with classical music, or for those who may not be familiar with the intense technicalities of various pieces, my pianist Franz Liszt or violinist Niccolo Paganini, I recommend checking out the YouTube links and our source notes for some short videos on what their work is like. There's a video for pianist Lang Lang on what a work by Franz Liszt would be like. There's a video for violinist Roman Kim on what a piece by Paganini would be like. And just for fun, I recommend checking out the link and our source notes for Two Set Violins Rap Battle of Liszt versus Paganini. It's actually quite a lot of fun, but I definitely recommend checking out the Lang Lang and Roman Kim videos. If you're not familiar with them, that'll give you kind of an idea of the type of performance and just amazing technicalities that go into these incredibly difficult pieces that Liszt created and performed. Uh, I think that if you're not familiar, that would help with some of the understandings that we're gonna talk about later. And with that, that said, let's get into today's weird history. Hey there, history fans, and welcome back to our Weird History episodes, where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. Today, we've got Caitlin back on the show. Hey, guys. I am back. I am a substitute stand-in. <laughs> You're our guest host. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a guest, but I'm also a substitute when need be. Yeah. What'd you think of that last weird history? I thought it was very interesting. Honestly, I never imagined people would actually turn into Simpsons or, or Smurfs. People that would become living plants. The world is a fascinating place, no matter what the time period. True, true. You ready to get into today's weird episode? I am very curious. So yes, I am very ready. You got it. So I have a question for you before I go into info. All right. What is it? When you think of like super rock stars or massive rock musicians or just massive like superstar musicians, who does normally come to mind for you? Because I tend to think of we're talking like massive, like Elvis, Beatlemania, the Rolling Stones, you know, massive crowds of throngs of women throwing themselves at musicians kind of a thing. Yeah, I kind of uh, figured the same thing. I would say Prince, Michael Jackson, Elvis, uh, the Beatles, or even just Paul McCartney himself. Just people crowding around in, in whole stadiums just to get a glimpse of these legendary rock stars. That, that's what I think of. Right, that's what I think of. So for our, our listeners... Going off of that, think of rock acts that you've seen where fans have almost, if not literally, have gone crazy over these musicians. We're talking like jumping on stage, stealing their clothing, 
throwing bras at them, going through their trash for souvenirs, writing excessive amounts of fan mail and, you know, I love you, marry me, you know, that wedding proposals through the mail and things like that. Anything outside of a mosh pit. Yeah, pretty much. Basically. Yeah. So when we think of these massive superstar musicians, you usually think of them in more of a modern sense from about the 50s up to today. So what if I told you that there was one man who started this craze, but it didn't happen in modern times. It took place in the 1840s. In the 1840s? Now I'm really curious. Mm-hmm. What if I were to say, of course, electricity wasn't a big thing back then, so this wasn't electric guitar or anything like that, but that this person was not just a classical musician, but a trained pianist? Huh. I, I'm trying, I'm sorry, I'm trying to imagine an epic, legendary rock and roll player without the electric guitar, or any guitar for that matter, but just slamming away at his keys on the piano, either death metal screaming or just going ham. <laughs> like, like, uh, just picture Beethoven, but with either a mohawk or extreme long black hair well, you're- and, and the crazy stuff. You're not too far away. So imagine like that look of Beethoven, but also more of like an Elton John. Okay. So I keep, keep kind of Elton John in mind in the terms of he's incredibly charismatic. He really knows how to work the crowd. He's super talented at the piano. Keep that in mind. Okay. Because we're going to essentially and... jump into the 1850s version All right. of Elton John. <laughs> Let's let's get into it. So this man is known as Franz Liszt, which as a classical music fan, that might sound familiar to you. And he was a pianist who actually traveled throughout Europe playing salons and concert halls, all the while having to fend off crazy women who tried to tear his clothing off, tried to cut off pieces of his hair, fighting over broken piano strings that they could try turning into bracelets. Oh my God! Yeah, no, and they were they worse. were they were psycho to begin with, <laughs> even during the time period. Yeah, pretty much. Well, a, a German poet named Heinrich Heine, I think it is, actually dubbed this listomania. Listomania. Yeah, not to be confused with listmania, which is something about people that just like list. I think. So, who is Franz Liszt? So he was born on October twenty second of 1811 and was a Hungarian born pianist and began training at the piano at age seven by his father, Adam. And his father was actually a very prominent musician for the time. Not only did he play piano, he also played violin, cello, and guitar. And he also knew many prominent classical musicians of the time, including Beethoven, Haydn, who was actually a student of Beethoven, and Hummel as well. Oh, wow. So it seems to run in the family. Mm-hmm. So by age 11, Franz was actually completing his first compositions and playing concerts. And one of his teachers around the time was also, I thought this is a great tidbit, Antonio Salieri, who at the time when Franz was 11, Salieri was the director of the Viennese court. Um, He was the court musician. Wow. Yeah. So over his career, he became friends with many romantic classical style composers, which would have taken place in like the 1830s-ish up until the early 19-teens. 
this is a literal prodigy who grew up popular amongst the the holy grail of classical music people yes but also the classical music as it was waning from what we know as the classical period of classical music into Mm -hmm. the romantic period of classical music yes and he ended up becoming friends with Chopin, Wagner, Berlioz, Cézanne, Clara Schumann, so probably both Schumanns, but if you're not familiar with Clara Schumann, look her up. She was amazing. One of my absolute favorite classical musicians, Debussy, and even Edvard Grieg. And interesting enough, Franz Liszt's daughter would end up marrying Wagner, so he would also be son-in-law to his friend Wagner. Wow. Yeah. Go figure. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So on April 20th, 1832, List attended a charity concert for the victims of a Parisian cholera epidemic, which was led by none other than Niccolo Paganini. And he actually met and became friends with Paganini. And upon meeting him, List made the definitive decision that he was going to be as masterful on the piano as Paganini was on the violin. And Pognini that's, was also a prodigy on the violin. That's quite the goal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in 1833, he also met and began a relationship with Countess Maria de Gaulle. And eventually in 1835, the Countess left her husband for lists and they traveled to Geneva. And it was here on December 18th that their daughter Blandine was born. Over the next four years, List and Marie lived together and toured throughout Europe, often typically staying in Switzerland or Italy. And soon they had another daughter named Cosima. And then in May of 1839, their son Daniel was born. However, this would mark the end of their straining relationship. At What one point, happened? Probably all the touring. And she was still married. And she had kids with the other, her, her still legal uh. husband. So... Struggling with affairs. Affairs and extra children and traveling. Yeah, I mean. So yeah. at one point, List heard that there was a, a Beethoven monument that actually needed some money and support. And so in order to help him out, that meant he'd have to go back on tour. So he decided he was going to go back on tour because he's friends with Beethoven. He knew, he knew him growing up. And so at this point, it, Marie decided that she was going to take the children with her and move back to Paris. And over the next eight years, List toured Europe, and he would be in touch with Marie and their children and spending some summers with them, usually in 1841 and 1843. But in 1844, the couple made arrangements just to finalize their separation. She took the kids and went back home. Ah, very sad there. Yeah. When it came to romance, he was not quite so lucky. (laughs) But... He went on this European tour and it lasted eight years. So from 1839 to 1847. And during this time, he had a propensity to give three to four concerts a week. That's insane. Yeah. Throughout Europe. (laughs) Yeah. Having kids in that picture while doing that amount of, of work going around Europe is, it would put a massive strain even if he didn't have a relationship with anybody, even if he had custody of the children, he, he I don't think he would have found any time for, to spend with them. Right, exactly. I, it, it would have just been really hard because he's traveling from one town to the next town and just the traveling time to get there, of course, because there's no cars and 
just the promotions and he's doing charity events too while he's out touring yeah it was pretty rough. The whole spiel yeah so with giving three to four concerts a week it's actually safe to assume that he gave over 1,000 performances in just eight years that is bonkers mm-hmm. yeah at, at this point i would kind of ask how he even lived that long to give out that many performances especially given the time period yeah but drugs were prevalent uh that and explain why (laughs) that would explain why yeah it never ends there's there's no i mean coffee there was we we we, there's there's some things that said like yeah he definitely drank a lot of coffee but i mean i i don't know definitively about drugs but it they they were prevalent certainly back then and people took a lot of them my goodness no it's all about the pressures of the stage right i mean did people do it now people did it then it's really no surprise no so during these eight years is actually considered to be his most prolific and prosperous time i mean obviously he gave over a thousand performances possibly Mm -hmm. So as his fame grew, his success grew, his adoration grew, and his most famous works were also composed during this time. And it was even at this time, he even received an honorary doctorate from the University of Konigsberg, which at the time was a very unusual accolade to hand out. That does sound weird. Mm -hmm. And we hear about that today, but in the 1840s, that certainly was an unusual thing to do. Usually you would have to to go through all of the steps to get the degree itself. Oh, yeah. Imagine mm-hmm. how the students would feel about hearing upon that a musician of all people received an honorary doctorate. And they look at their own studies and it's like, my life has been a waste. Well, if you're as charismatic as Franz Liszt with the following, he had probably not. Mm, yeah, true. Now we're going to get into Listomania. So it's during these eight years that the hysterical, that the, the the insanity the insanity of listomania occurred for pretty much most of these eight years let's hear about it so (laughs) (laughs) you ready i i think so (laughs) i'm sorry i'm just imagining all the different possible scenarios given the time i'm about to get into (laughs) so as i said he went on tour starting in 1839 1841 mm-hmm. marks the beginning of Listomania. And it actually happened around Christmas in that year. He was scheduled to play in Berlin. And he had already had a following up in that point. But the definitive introduction of women throwing themselves at him started around this time. Oh, my. Yeah. So he was, he was already pretty popular beforehand. But over the, like, 39 into 40, he started cultivating that cult following he would end up having not maybe not intentionally but it helps i mean yeah it does help but it does expose how crazy fans can get no matter what the time period exactly for sure so as i said he was playing in berlin around christmas just before christmas and word traveled that he was coming so by the time he showed up in berlin he was actually serenaded by 30 students who ended up playing some of his work back at him when he showed up Oh, that's actually pretty sweet. That is sweet. I like that one. Yeah. So on the 27th of December might be the very definitive date for it because it was then he gave yet another concert while in Berlin. And 
this is when the crowds of seriously passionate fans attended this performance. And from 1841 until his retirement, which was not too long after, Mm -hmm. he would literally have to contend with throngs of mostly women, but people not only wanting pieces of his clothing or his hair, which they would then put in lockets, but also try to tear off of his off the gloves he had on his hand, literally t- try to tear off his tailcoats. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Many of the fans also wore brooches to the concerts with his portrait on it, which I think may be possibly the beginning of wearing tour t-shirts to the concert. I wouldn't be surprised. That's the first thing that came to mind is that's their equivalent to wearing a band or a, a person's t-shirt to that concert. Yeah, imagine though if he got royalties from from that, which you would normally get today, but you could probably just go to a, a portraitist and be like, oh, I want a brooch or a cameo of this. In addition to this, there were some reports that said women attending his concert would even try to make off with his coffee dregs, which they would then try to secrete in glass vials they carried around on their like on their person. That sounds like witchcraft. <laughs> no, that sounds like insanity. <laughs> <laughs> insanity mixed with witchcraft i mean i oh, don't know his spirit essence through his coffee i don't know what they were doing with the coffee but as soon as i read that i i just couldn't stop laughing i'm just assuming you're, you're waiting around he leaves the table at the cafe you immediately steal his coffee and you pour it into a small glass vial that you can now wear around your neck saying i've got a piece of franz list's coffee oh my god <laughs> And again, it's quite over broken piano strings in order to try to make bracelets out of this in terms of mementos. I remember back when I was in high school, how crazy the Bieber fever was and how I would see on the news people posting little locks of Justin Bieber's hair online for sale and how, how many people would style their hair in that same style and that at that time too, it was, it was crazy. And just thinking about that brings me to this subject about, again, fans going absolutely insane over somebody famous. Mm-hmm. And there was no, definitely no media at that time other than say maybe books or word of mouth and paintings and obviously music. Newspapers. Being shared around, newspapers. So that was the only way they could ever find out about how big a person got. Whereas these days, everything's instant. Right. And and the market's oversaturated. Yeah. Well, it's been oversaturated for a little while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're probably wondering why all this happened. Oh, yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. (laughs) So there's no definitive cause. Was he just that overly handsome? He would, yeah, I'm for the time, yeah. He was that charismatic, that engaging, and that handsome. Well, then, for a classical pianist, <laughs> and I'll get into not, that too. <laughs> not with the white wigs and the and anything like that, right? Or unless he did wear a white wig and he actually looked really good in it. No, no white wigs. So you're leaving the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Where you've got the massive wigs and the crazy flare. <laughs> more costumes than any than actual clothing at this point. Right. 
but once you get into the 1830s or so and you, you're really going now into the romantic period during the victorian times it's all natural victoria herself think about it was all natural like oh she did not like makeup she wore standard like general cl colored clothing nothing too loud she didn't have her hair piled up so the 1830s and through the entire victorian times was all a natural look mm -hmm. so Heinrich Heine actually wrote in the same letter that in which he coined the term listomania, he also wrote that he'd asked a physician whose quote specialty was female diseases. Oh boy. Yeah. And in his letter, he said that the physician replied, because he was asking him, why, why is this going on with our list? He does say that our lists, Franz mm -hmm. list and him were friends. He's like, this is our list. He's he's so charismatic. Why do people do this? Why, why do they fall? In, you know, they're like all in love with him. And apparently the physician wrote saying, magnetism, galvanism, electricity of the close hall that's filled with countless wax lights, several hundred perfumed and perspiring human beings, or historical epilepsy. And this last one, I don't understand. A phenomenal, the, the phenomenon of tickling. Uh, what? Yeah, I didn't understand that. They tickle the pheromones. I guess, maybe. He just says, like, I believe this has reference to the mysteries. I, to what mysteries? I don't understand. Honestly, it just sounds like they went crazy because of his energy on top of his good looks. On yes, top of his awesome music. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Maybe even, I said Elton John before, you go a little before that, throw in some Liberace. Oh, yeah. And there you have it. Exactly. Listomania. Yes, Listomania. Oh, I've got more. We're just going to cover the rest of his life. Let's do it. So at the end of this particular letter, Heine also wrote that he believes that sorcery is actually the source of lists. I, I told I told you it was witchcraft. It was witchcraft all along. Because <laughs> he actually wrote, no one on earth knows so well as to organize his successes as our Franz Liszt. <laughs> witchcraft well it's the victorian time so i don't know if that's just a chide on of being a friend like you're nudging him going you're such a witch or if he actually believed it was real sorcery i don't know supernatural is always an option exactly so it's pointed out that the term listomania which originated in the 1840s and beatomania which of course originated in the 1960s have completely different uses when it comes to the term mania. So the mm -hmm. latter, in the modern times, mania typically stands for a very passionate fan who wants to be part of whatever the new craze is. In the Victorian times, mania was specifically referred to as a medical term, meaning hysterics. Yeah, the, hyster the whole hysteria. It's all women's diseases. Yep. What's really interesting about this is because back then it was used as a medical term. Some people at the time actually believed that listomania was possibly even contagious as a disease. And actually, there were critics of List himself, and they recommended ways to try to immune, immunize the public from listomania, thinking it was contagious. How would they immunize large throngs of people? What do they do? Spread honey on their lips and sprinkle rice all over their skin or 
What? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's just random things that came into mind that would probably be a, a natural remedy to keep them from from their whole listomania from spreading it upon each other. I mean, I tend to go towards more practical where they try to write horrible reviews in the paper about him and try to make the women folk stay home. Honestly, I was just thinking of anything outlandish, kind of like crystal therapy yeah. and how much Jamba juice to drink to cure any sicknesses. I mean, juice is good, but that's a bit over juice. Yes. <laughs> All right. So what else contributed so, to the whole listomania? Well, during the time that he set off on his European tour, being back in 1839, mm-hmm. the consentment of piano soloists particularly at this time was that quote no one could hold an audience captivated by just the piano alone challenge accepted exactly that's exactly what he did he literally went out to prove that sentiment wrong good on him look what the result was exactly and one of the things he would actually do was to never bring his scores on stage with him he memorized everything he played wow well, then, then again, given his fan base, they probably would have ran on stage and stole them. Yeah, no, there's that too. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it was for his own safety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was hard enough, but yeah, probably. So there's a concert pianist named Stephen Hugh, and he's also apparently a very big fan of Liszt. And he actually remarks that Liszt saw the piano, especially for a whole evening in front of an audience, as a theatrical performance that needed not only musical things happening on stage, but also physical things, which is why I'm bringing up Liberace and I'm bringing up Elton John. They're very theatrical. They are. Not in just what they wear, but in their performance. Obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, especially Elton John. He was really out there. Oh, sure. Yeah. He's fun to watch. Mm-hmm. So Liszt's stage performance were literally just that. So according to reports, he would have his piano set on stage so that he would be in profile much like we see pianos are done now typically you have the piano set facing the audience so that you are then also facing the audience right instead of off to the side where the piano you can see them playing the keys and that's kind of it we classical music still kind of does that but modern music doesn't Mm -hmm. and you want to see the face right and apparently while he was playing very much i was thinking more beethoven when I read this, but he would whip his head <laughs> side to side while he played and moving it, which I can see is a very Beethoven thing to do. Because his hair was always crazy to begin with. Sounds like something metal. Very. very <laughs> he could have been the very grandpa of head banging. Hey, you never know. The great great grandfather of head banging. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but it's said that because of the, the well, not headlights because it's the 1800s but the limelights and the lanterns and the candles it would get very hot of course and so he's playing as emotionally as possible he's got all this energy he's whipping his head back and forth and it said that the sweat would just fly off of his onto the crowd in front of him (laughs) oh no and the crowd's like, oh my gosh, shower me, Liz, shower me. Ew. <laughs> that is disgusting. <laughs> but of course, they were blinded by their own craziness. So. Right, right. And he actually started a few trends that we actually now see, not only with 
musical performers, but particularly modern music performers. He was the first to actually make sure that he can see the audience and turn and face the audience rather than that side profile that we sometimes see in classical uh, recitals. He was actually mm-hmm. the person to term the word recital. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And he was also the first person to make a show of coming on stage and sitting at the piano. If we think about how we've seen even in Looney Tunes sometimes when you've seen the, the person coming up to the piano and they strut up to the piano, they flip their coattails and have a sit. That, mm-hmm. That's Liz. Wow. That's, that's very fascinating. Uh-huh. And in addition to that, according to Stephen Hugh, Liz was also the type of personality that was usually on the search for something, usually just something to give him sort of fulfillment, mm-hmm. which I can totally understand. So apparently in his teens, Liz had even thought about becoming a priest. Out of the blue, a random priest? Oh, well, no, not maybe not necessarily. It, it is the 1800s and... Typically, if you do not have some sort of vocation that you're trained to do, usually mm-hmm. priesthood is typically your second choice. Uh, that would also be uh, a good point mm-hmm. to make. But because priests back then were also very outspoken, they had to they had to speak clearly and loudly so that everyone in their services could actually hear them. There was no amplifier aside from the building's acoustics. I think for him, it wasn't so much the, 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 the theatrics of creating an atmosphere around being a priest or the acoustics. I think for him, it was more of a spiritual. Ah. Because that actually another, into later after he retired. Another type of connection. Yeah, he's literally just looking for personal fulfillment. So he played for a while. He, you know, he played concerts and com- composed music growing up. And then he's like, well, maybe I want the quiet life. Maybe I'll be a priest. But then he kind of, start, his career sort of took off and he kind of went from there. So he did that for a while. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find personal fulfillment. At, and I understand that very much because I'm, I don't move around frequently, frequently, but I'm always trying to find a place that I feel very comfortable in or people that, I, like a group of people, I try to cultivate people I've, whose company I enjoy. Oh, yes. I'm always looking for for new things to try and new people to meet. Yeah, I'm always looking for fulfillment in my art, not necessarily as being extroverted as you are, but more on an internal level with different people, different artists, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Having that sort of personal connection to fulfill whatever desires that I want in, in any company or in any sort of art form. Right, and I think introverted or extroverted I think everybody has that sort of want in them for personal fulfillment Mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to try a bunch of different things to find that yep you gotta just keep casting your fishing line I mean everybody everybody goes through phases you work at one job then you go to another job and you work at another job or you try this you try this hobby You you know everyone's looking for something personal fulfillment it's not a phase you (laughs) <laughs> it may go in phases like you yes stay here for a couple years then you go try something else but not so much as it's a phase it's just right. in phases of course a series of phases yeah mind you mm-hmm. so during the time of his performances particularly during these eight years where he had throngs of women almost literally throwing themselves at him mm-hmm. he actually realized 
And this is still a thing today that the audience and the appreciation of him wasn't really so much genuine and that it was more superficial. Mm-hmm. And you could certainly say that about a lot of people who are massive fans of things, not so much just general fans, but certainly massive fans. Right. It's more of, I just want to get close to this, the, the fame of your celebrity. I just want to be close to, it's not always so much you. Right. It's all about the fame, not the person. Right. Right. So as List entered into his thirties, actually specifically around age 35, he decided that he was going to retire from playing music and go seek personal fulfillment elsewhere. And in the following year, because he retired in 1847, so in 1848, he actually took up an invitation from the Grand Duchess of Russia, Maria Pavlovna. Yeah. That's big. Well, he had received several invitations from her over the few years asking him to come to Weimar and, and be a guest at her estates. And he turned her down because he was traveling but he after he retired and he had more time he's like okay i'll go hang out with the grand duchess and he settled in weimar and he'd actually been there several times before because it's sort of in eastern europe and previously when he was there in 1842 he'd actually been appointed kapellmeister extraordinaire and when he returned back to weimar in 1848 he actually acquired that post again and stayed as the Kapellmeister in, until 1861. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now he's he's a Kapellmeister extraordinaire, which was a title I'd never heard of before. I just had heard of Kapellmeister. And he's got an honorary doctorate in music. But that's, that's still really big for having a lot of both athletes. titles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially at that age, too. Right. Crazy, crazy. See, he was a prodigy from the start. Yeah, he kind of was. So while he was playing in Kiev in February of 1847, List actually met the Polish princess, Caroline Zunzain Wittgenstein, and she would actually become an incredible influence on List's life. In fact, she was the one who persuaded him to concentrate more on his composing, which meant that he could no longer be a traveling virtuoso. Because if you're traveling as much as he did, you don't have time to write music. Right. So first, the Duchess. And now the princess. Right. Uh, no, no. Don't forget the countess. <laughs> and the countess. <laughs> like this guy had life. <laughs> he did. He had so many connections. While having a beginning his relationship with the Polish princess and staying at the Grand Duchess of Russia's palace, he gave his final performance in September of 1847 and then would winter with the princess at her estate. On business relations or no, something else? Something else. Ah, mm-hmm. see, there's more to it. Mm-hmm. And you might think, why would he retire at the height of his fame? Maybe he just got tired of being followed by crazy, insane fans frothing at the mouth for his very being I mean, as a souvenir. Did. No, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, if you think about it in a, in a completely different way, retiring at the height of your, amass, your massive amount of fame that he would have keeps that legendary status alive and you don't live long enough to see it tarnished. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think of it, think of it that way. 
I think it's it's both ways for him. He 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 was tired of the self-appeasing adoration that mm-hmm. he was getting because he wanted something more fulfilling in life. But also doing that allows his legendary status to remain untarnished. Yeah. Because when I mean, you look at you look at some of these celebrities in this day and age, how they've continued to prolong their fame. And with some of them, they they tarnish their reputation, whether it would be through um, certain forms of harassment in the past or any other allegations that may surface, stuff like that. What's the saying? Quit while you're still the hero so you don't live long enough to be the villain or something like that? Probably. As we said, he took up a relationship with the currently married Polish princess Caroline Sein, uh, Wittgenstein mm-hmm. and they lived together for quite some time and she actually wanted to marry him but she was still married oh man to a very prominent military officer and they almost got married he was about they wanted to get married on Franz's 50th birthday and mm-hmm. the story goes is that they appealed to the Pope to get a divorce so that she could marry List. And they sent a letter and the Pope said, okay, I can grant this. But they were unaware that the day after they showed up to mm-hmm. get married with the Pope's permission, the Pope had changed his mind. Oh day. no. So he's like, this is unholy. You're in an affair. Stop. Kind of, yeah, yeah. So they had to call it off because she was still married and the Pope said, no, I changed my mind. You can't have a divorce. Oh, my. And how was the military husband in all this? I bet he was really, really stoic and definitely upset with the matter. I mean, imagine. I mean, the Countess and, and her husband and the kids she had with him before she took a list i mean oh, that's true yeah it's it's a weird love triangle yeah another weird <laughs> love triangle yeah so during the 1860s list actually had a rather sad life and a relatively quiet life uh, unfortunately in 1859 his son daniel died at only 20 years old oh and in young. 18 yeah young yeah and 1862, his eldest daughter, Blandine, who was 26, passed away. Three years later, he lost two kids. Any causes to either of them? Not that I could find. That's mm-hmm. sad. Yeah. So especially in 1862, because he's, I think, pretty devoted to his daughter, he wrote letters to friends at the time, letting them know that he was going to literally, to, quote, retreat to a solitary living. And he took up robes at the Madonna del Rosario Monastery in Rome on June 20th of 1863 Mm -hmm. and lived like a monk for a while. Huh. Mm -hmm. So that's coming back. I mentioned he was thinking about being a priest. Now he's taking up being, working as a monk. Finding that inner fulfillment. Mm -hmm. On April 25th, 1865, he actually received tonsure from Cardinal Holenloh which is like a second baptism. Mm-hmm. And on July 31st of 1865, he actually received four minor orders from the monastery. He got 
He was a porter, a lector, an exorcist, and an acolyte. So even in his own spiritual religious life, he gained big titles. I'm not done either, but yes. Oh my. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he lived at the monastery for quite some time. And after he was ordained at that monastery, he did he was actually referred to as Ave List. Hmm. So when he got the doctorate, he never went and told people, I'm Dr. List. He never referred to himself as doctor, never went by doctor. But when he became an ordained priest in, or at the monastery, he went by Abbey. Huh. I wonder why. He probably felt it was a better, in more something he actually achieved rather than something that was given to him. Probably. He probably just earned it. And what's interesting enough is on April 14th of 1879, he became an honorary priest at a nearby monastery. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So even then, he was still pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. And That's even amazing. during that time, he was still pretty big. Because even though he was living... Even he was living a monastic life, he wasn't completely closed off from the rest of the world. So in the late 1860s, he was still asked to compose and perform at various high-ranking ceremonies. And he did? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. But I think only if they were like really, really important high-ranking ceremonies, such as this one, which was the Hungarian coronation ceremony in 1866 for Franz Josef and Elizabeth of Bavaria, also more commonly known as Emperor Franz Josef and his wife, Cece. Hmm. And if you've never heard of Empress Cece, look her up. It's a fascinating, that whole family is fascinating and yet tragic all at the same time. Wow, that's, yeah. <laughs> it's still pretty big. Mm -hmm. Even, it, it, I guess music became his new side hustle once he took up being a monk and an honorary priest. Right. But imagine you took up being a monk to get away from the throngs of adorating fans. And you get asked to play the coronation ceremony for the newly crowned emperor of mm -hmm. Austria, Hungary. It's like the past has come back to haunt him. Well, I don't know that he would have wanted to turn it down either. That's like saying no to royalty. I mean, it literally is. So it's kind of a hard thing to want to turn down. Mm hmm. But unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. So in 1881, on July 2nd, List apparently fell down some flight of stairs at the hotel he was staying at in Weimar. And although this injury didn't like seriously hurt him so much, mm -hmm. he was in fairly health, fairly good health by that time. Although he's now old, old. Yeah, he's he's in his late 60s. Yeah, getting there. About 69, 70-ish at this time. So, yeah. It's it's pretty elder for the time period. Right, right. So it left him immobilized for eight weeks. He never really fully recovered from this. And over the next five years, he suffered from even more ailments. He ended up with dropsy, which is when your body retains extra fluid. He had asthma, cataracts, heart disease, and even suffered from insomnia. Oh, the poor guy. Yeah, it's like, I had this great life, and then all of a sudden, whoop, the last five years are a mess. Wow. 
all from stairs? Not necessarily. He probably had some underlying conditions that were just compounded by being immobilized for eight weeks. And they probably just surfaced. Right. So falling down the stairs would have been the catalyst. Right. Or he had them and like if he had asthma growing up, it maybe it wasn't as bad, but as he got older, it became worse. Mm-hmm. So having to deal with all of these oncoming ailments, he ended up with a preoccupation with death. And some of those feelings can actually be felt in his compositions from this time, not too unlike Beethoven, where after he went deaf, the music is fairly different from his earlier works, which mm-hmm. were also typically a bit more jovial, but when you listen to later Beethoven music after he went deaf, because he needed to feel the music from the instrument, it had to be a right. lot more bassy, essentially. Yes. So for anyone who writes music, that is how you emote. So that makes a lot of sense. So the more bass, the more feeling. Got it. <laughs> yeah, more or less. And on July 31st of 1866, at the age of 74, Liszt passed away. His death certificate listed pneumonia as a possible cause, although there is speculation that it was more than just pneumonia, or at least medical malpractice. But it said that he possibly caught pneumonia while he was attending the Bayreuth Festival that year, that his daughter, his surviving daughter, Cosimo, was actually in charge of. That's kind of cool. And he was buried in Bayreuth on August 3rd of 1886. Now, by the end of his musical career, it's said that he composed roughly 1,400 pieces of music. That's incredible. Yeah. I don't know how many Mozart wrote, but he's certainly one of the most prolific musical composers, that, at least of classical music. I don't know what his number is, but it's certainly quite a lot. But 1,400 is insane. Just for the piano? Well... Mostly for piano, at the very least. Okay, but it's still quite a bit. Yeah. Given the, the career run he had. Right, and if you think about it, during those particular eight years, he had, at the very least, a thousand concerts, give or take. Mm-hmm. Plus a few concerts after, and several concerts growing up, because he started playing concerts at the age of 11. So if you think about it, there's a potentiality of having played around 1400 concerts during his life and he wrote roughly 1400 pieces of work makes sense he's a very busy guy oh yeah and many of these works can actually still be heard by musicians today you've got different recordings classical music specifically but you can also find many examples as we've listed before of people being inspired by his flair for performance do you have any examples on hand well, like we were talking about the strutting on stage, the flash from the tailcoats. Oh, yes. The yes. head banging and whipping around and, and the charisma. charisma. Mm-hmm. That's why we kept mentioning Liberace and Elton John. Mm-hmm. And as a legacy outside of music, there was a film that was produced in 1975 called Listomania. And it was directed by Ken Russell and actually stars Robert, Roger Daltrey from The Who. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'll Another a, musical connection there. Right? Well, yeah. Why not? He probably plays the keyboard in, within the band, so that makes sense. Yeah. And there will be a link for the trailer in our list notes, so if you're interested, check that out. And in a, I think it was 2015, there 
there's a French band called Phoenix, and they also put a song out called Listomania. But I haven't listened to it yet, though. And that music video for the song Listomania was actually shot outside of Liszt's home in Beirut, Germany, too. Now, in regards to Liszt's legacy, is his home uh, like a national monument or his grave? Can you go visit it? Like you can visit other celebrity graves or do they have it hidden away? Can you visit the grave to this day or is it cut off from the public? Well, he's on find a grave. So he's got a little crypt, it looks like. That, Spooky. Yes. <laughs> um, it's actually kind of cute. Let me send a picture over to you. It looks like a little castle. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. His very own crypt. Yeah. His own castle. Lo- Fitting for someone who played for people of royalty. Right. Quiet, secluded, just as he would want it. Wow. His daughter Cosima lived for almost 100 years. She was born in 1837 mm-hmm. and passed away in 1930. Wow. Now that's a prosperous life. Uh, yeah, or at least a long one. I would be <laughs> prosperous. Wowzies. So yeah, you can definitely visit his his grave, his little memorial crypt in Beirut, Germany, for sure. What was your other question? Oh, that was basically it, whether it was open to the public or not. Oh, I mean, the graveyard is that you can't go into the memorial, but you can certainly pay respects at the memorial. That's good. Yeah. And according to many people who like classical music, the closest we have to a classical musician that would be similar to Liszt is the musician Lang Lang, who is not only a massive fan of Franz Liszt and was inspired by Liszt growing up. It's, Lang Lang actually said that he heard the Hungarian Rhapsody number no. two, I think when he was two years old. Oh, wow. And just kind of went from there. And he actually has an album out that's called List My Piano Hero. That's a wonderful tribute right there. Yeah. Now, are there any descendants of List that are alive to this day? I don't know unless Cosima had some children. Let's take a look. Now, I don't think so. Um, At least... Not that I'm able to find at least through find a grave because it, it'll tell you siblings uh, and children related to the person you're looking at. The mm-hmm. Cosima eventually married Richard Wagner and they had children. And the eldest surviving was uh, Wolfgang Wagner and he passed away in 2010, but I don't see any listed children for him. Huh. So the line could have ended there. Possibly. Wow. Well, it is what it is. That's just part of life. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for today's weird history. What are your overall thoughts? My overall thoughts? What a legend. I'm actually surprised that I've never heard of this guy until our podcast episode do you usually listen to classical music not really 
I listen to some of it from time to time, but it's also mainly video game original soundtracks as well that have that classical-ish feel to it. I do love songs that include the piano in them. Oh, then I could cultivate a very long classical playlist for you. <laughs> I grew up with classical music. I, it's literally my favorite style of music ever. Uh, see, I grew up with the 60s music. Oh, no, I did too. But, and, and I absolutely adore oldies music. It was, that was, I grew up with country, 90s country, classic rock, and oldies music in terms of what was on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I would listen every day to the oldies station. But I had a family friend and when we would, she'd drive us around places or we go hang out at her house. She just listened to the classical station. So I had an upbringing from her. She also introduced me into opera and things like that. So although I didn't intentionally listen to it at home, I had an upbringing of it. And then eventually I began to appreciate it a lot more. And when I was in high school, I began to listen to it quite a lot. And I still love it to this day, of course. So if you were to ask me if you could only listen to one type of music for the rest of your life, what would it be? Hands down classical. For you, it would be classical music. Yeah, yeah I could I could kind of see that. It's pretty timeless. It's timeless. It also, the way I like to view it is it's, and I think instrumental music in general is like this, not specifically just classical music. It's just mm-hmm. classical music also has that history to it, which I love. But yes. instrumental music in general, it it's very emotive. You're telling a story through song without the need of vocals. Exactly. You don't have to have mo- vocals to make music. You can still emote a story or a feeling in general through sound. And that's the beauty of it all. Right. That's why I love music so much in general. And it sounds like Liz took that to the next level. He definitely pushed the envelope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you can find us online if you're interested at facebook.com slash history explains it all. Our Instagram page is history explains it all underscore podcast. If you have any suggestions for upcoming episodes or want to leave us feedback, you can also send us an email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. And again, if you listen to us on Spotify, don't forget to check out our episode notes for any episode specific polls or questions that I would put out. And thank you, Caitlin, for joining me today. Hey, no problem. Thank you very much for having me on again. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Aww. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll talk to everyone next week as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Bye-bye. Peace.